Well, good morning. It is a very happy day for me. It's, uh, <laughs> I can tell you, I'm very excited. Um, now, I thought to begin this morning, I should address the elephant in the room, my height. Uh, <laughs> I thought I should just go over, you know, a few questions I get asked. I'm six foot eight. My wife is six feet tall. Um, and yes, I occasionally hit my head on door frames. Not too often, but on older buildings. Um, and yes, I did play sports, mostly basketball. And yes, the weather is the same up there as it is down there. Um, and I can tell you, I can tell all of you here this morning that for me and Yvette, this last couple of weeks, this last year, I would say, has been a whirlwind. It's been a bit crazy. Some of you may know we got married in January, early January, January 7th. And about a month or two afterwards, we found out that Yvette was pregnant. And so that is like, oh man, that's a lot of change right there. But on a, on a lighter note, one thing no one ever talked to me in premarital was that when you get married, you have to share a bed with someone. I thought that was going to be easy. I was so used to sprawling out on my queen-size bed, and then all of a sudden, half of my bed real estate is gone. And I'm like, what is with this? This is so difficult. You know, sometimes it's those small, practical things that are actually make the difficulties for us. And getting back to kind of the whirlwind, um, you know, me and Yvette, when we came and we chose to accept the position in Simcoe, meant that we had to pick up things from Alberta and to move here. And I want to say that, you know, those moves are hard, but they're also good. They bring joy. And one thing I, I noticed, I never really, you know, I have some family in the London area, so I've flown to kind of Toronto area and, and seen family, but I didn't realize how beautiful Ontario is on the drive. You know, kind of when we got out of Manitoba, then we hit, kind of began to hit the shield, and then you hit the lakes, and you hit all the rocks, and it's just, it's a beautiful thing to say. Now, I will say, I can't say the exact same thing about Manitoba and Saskatchewan. <laughs> I wouldn't say they're as beautiful. Hopefully, I'm not offending any of you, but, um, you know, it's just, it's not quite the same thing. Now, I'm not sure what you're all expecting this morning, since it's my first time preaching at Evergreen. And so, you know, I was thinking, it's like, a good plan would be to, you know, preach really poorly, because then <laughs> I just set the bar, like, really low, and every time I do a little better, you're like, man, Stephen's really improving. Uh, but... <laughs> All joking aside, I'm really honored to be here with you this morning. Um, I consider it a real privilege to preach and to share with you from Scripture. It's a sacred responsibility. And I want to recognize that I am following pastors that have loved this church, that have loved this community, from all I hear about Jeff McLeod and all the work him and his family did, how they were so involved. And you know, I'll be honest, I'm probably going to struggle to replicate that. He's a tough act to follow. He did a wonderful job. And then I think of Keith and how he's helped transition this church from one point to another. And I can see his love for the community. I can see that he cares about this church and he wants it to do well. And then even just this last week, working with Tamil, seeing how much she loves this church, how much she cares about this church, how much she's invested in this church. So suffice to say, I don't take that lightly. You know, it's, it's a huge responsibility. And even just working with some of the staff at Evergreen already, you know, has, I've just been blessed to be with them and to see their love for this church and this community. When I think about Evergreen and I think about the future of what we want to look like, sometimes pastors have these big visions, these big plans that come into the church. Oh, we want to see this, we want to do that. And there's a place for that, and that can be good. But for me, 
I come from a much, I would say, more of a, a simpler place. My hope for Evergreen would that we would embody Jesus. That the way that we communicate with one another, the way that we move in the community, people would see Jesus in us. I think if I was here for a number of years and I ended up leaving and I could say that we looked more like Jesus, I would consider that a success. Numbers, these other things that people care about, they can be important, but to me the most important thing, the bedrock is Jesus. If we don't look like Jesus, if we don't embody Jesus, then in some ways I will say that I have failed to some degree. I hope that we will act, smell like, look like, be like Jesus. I titled this series uh, from the next four weeks, Formed in the Image of Jesus. And I want us to grow in this journey become more like him. And we're going to be looking at Luke 9, 21 to 25. My hope is that we will be full of the Holy Spirit, empowered to be Jesus incarnate, his hands and feet, not just simply mental assent. It's very easy to say, oh, you know, I believe in A, B, and C, and, you know, that makes me a Christian. But often Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples, his followers, he says, like, you know, follow me, take up my cross. He says, you know, do the things that I'm doing. I want to share a story to begin this morning. It's something that deeply impacted me as a teenager. Some of you, probably most of you can remember those years of entering a teenager, that 13 years old, 14 year old stage, when your hormones begin to change, you begin to see life differently, you begin to wonder about things, you begin to question things a bit more intensely perhaps. And I remember a job I had as a teenager. Um, growing up in Alberta, usually I just did landscaping every summer, so that was you know building decks, sometimes it was mowing lawns, uh, building fences, kind of, that kind of work with your hands. And I, I really enjoy working with my hands. There's, there's a sense of satisfaction when you can build a job, you can you know, work on something, you can see it come to completion. But there was one thing that I struggled with in this line of work. See, I had a boss, and he was a Christian man. He was very well known at the church he attended. He was an elder there, one of the head elders actually at that church, and he would occasionally speak one or two times a year. And me, he knew that I was a pastor's son, so he generally, he treated me well. But I noticed something over the years that I couldn't, couldn't really make sense. I couldn't square it in my head. Often the way that he treated his workers was not like Jesus. I would see fits of rage. I would see manipulation, control. And these saddened me, and I believe grieved the heart of God. And that's not to say his workers were perfect. And landscaping, the people that usually work that can be quite difficult people to deal with. But I remember being confused. How can a man who is lauded and respected in the church as a head elder, who speaks, be one person on a Sunday morning, but then Monday through Saturday seem to be someone different? And I want to say that I know no man or woman is perfect. We all have our faults. We all have our struggles. We all mess up from time to time. No one's perfect. But there seemed to be this, this disconnect in his mind that like, you know, Sunday, come to church, but then the Monday through Friday was kind of, that wasn't, that wasn't Jesus' area. And as a young teenager, I couldn't understand this. It actually left me very perplexed because I thought, you know, this man's so well-respected, he's in the church, but yet Jesus wasn't Lord of all parts of his life. And when we act in a manner that's contrary to the heart of God, I think it grieves him. I remember one time going to a barbecue. Uh, some of the workers, uh, one of the guys, his family had a 
like a, a small farm way outside the city. And so we all went for a barbecue together, uh, just me and the workers. And I remember actually apologizing to them and just saying, you know, like, as a Christian, I want to apologize for how this, this boss has acted because it grieves me and the way he's treated you hasn't been appropriate. And I remember one guy who was an atheist, he said to me, Stephen, I don't believe he's a Christian. <laughs> I was kind of shocked at that moment that he would say that. And, and he said, you don't need to apologize for him. And so I appreciate that he was able to see that this guy's life doesn't match up with what he knows about Christianity. But it saddened to me that to the workers, this disconnect was so obvious that we could attend church on Sunday and for the rest of the week, it didn't really matter. This was seminal in my formation as a teenager. It made me think, what's going on in the church that we can have just being like Jesus on Sunday morning and sometimes throughout the week not really care. And this morning, I want to encourage us, we are called this morning to be formed into the image of Jesus. I'm not saying it's easy. We're not called just to, you know, have mental assent to just think about things, but rather we're called to embody the heart of Jesus. And this morning, I want to encourage us, would we challenge one another, hold each other accountable, allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts to bring healing? Because I can almost guarantee you probably in my old boss's heart, there was probably things that needed to be healed. I think one of the primary means through which we are formed as a body is through suffering, through difficulties, through trials. And I believe these trials and difficulties shape us. It's not a matter if they shape us. The question is, how do difficulties and trials shape us? Do they shape us more into the image of Jesus? Or do they shape us maybe more into the world? Do we you know, get angry? Do we hold grudges? I just want to pray now before we head into Luke 9, 23 to 27. Father, we come to you in dependence on you, coming as your children. Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit as we look at the scriptures? Would you form us into the image of your Son? Lord, I pray that the talk of your Son wouldn't just be talk, but Lord, it would also be experienced. It would be lived. Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Now, if you have a Bible accessible, feel free to open it up. It can be a physical one or a phone. I'm not one of those people who's like, you need a physical Bible. I think if you've got it on the phone, that's great. Um, and we're going to be reading from Luke 9, um, 23, sorry, Luke 9, 18 to 25. Now, I'll usually be reading from the CSB, which is called the Christian Standard Bible. Um, I enjoy reading different translations. I'm just letting you guys know this so you have some measure of consistency with me, but feel free to read any translation. To me, the best translation is a translation that you read. That's the most important thing. And my hope is that you would just be grounded in scripture and grounded in community with one another. So Luke 9, 18 to 25, that can go up on there, that'd be great. Um, while he was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who did the crowd say that I am? He answered, John the Baptist, others Elijah, saw others that one of the prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by all the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. Then he said to them all, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, 
take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? The first thing I want to explore this morning is that Jesus frames suffering as part of his vocation. Jesus frames suffering as part of his vocation. Luke 9, 22 saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes and killed and be raised on the third day. Now here in verse 22, we see Jesus is responding to the affirmation from Peter. Jesus asks, who am I? And you know, Peter responds, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus gives this response here. And I think this would actually be very confusing to the disciples. I think to them, they would kind of be like, hey, Jesus, what are you saying here? Because for them, when they think of a Messiah, they think of someone who's going to conquer, someone who's going to destroy Rome, someone who's going to bring them freedom. For them, the Messiah would not be rejected by the religious leaders. He would be accepted. And a Messiah kills his enemy. He's not killed by them. And then Jesus talked of resurrection. Being resurrected, they thought of the resurrection at the end of time for for them, Not, not in the middle of time. And one person getting resurrected, this would have been very odd to them. And if you've been in a church a long time, we've heard these passages, we've read these passages, and we can forget kind of the the oddness about them, how when Jesus is saying this, this is actually going counter to many of the things that they believe. Jesus is teaching them, I bring my kingdom through the way of self-sacrifice, through the way of rejection, through the way of laying down my life. The ways of the kingdom of God often stand in opposition to the ways of the world. Can you imagine the disciples following Jesus? Jesus says, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed. And they're thinking, okay, if we're your disciples and we're following you and we're behind you and all of a sudden you get killed, where does that leave us? Because that means we're next. It's kind of like one of these like, you know, logical conclusions that if we follow you, well, then we're in trouble because if you're going to die, that means we're probably going to die too. See, the life of Jesus is through radical self-sacrifice. It doesn't work like the way of Rome, which is through power to, co- to coerce, but rather Jesus' power works within. That seeks to change how we work as a community, how we as individuals. When does malevolent violence ever do good? What does coercion and force in our world ever produce good? It's almost always more violence. It's almost always more coercion. It's almost always more brokenness. Jesus takes up the way of radical sacrifice, laying down his life, bringing the way of peace. This morning, what are our expectations of Jesus? I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I kind of want Jesus in my terms. Like, Jesus, you know, like, I want you to do this, I want you to do that, and this is what I expect. But Jesus asks us to take him on his own terms and to ask ourselves, Lord, Help me to understand what you're saying. Help me to follow you. Second point this morning is that becoming like Jesus requires suffering. Becoming like Jesus requires suffering. Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them all, if anyone anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Part of the call of Jesus is that we deny ourselves. 
I do not like this passage. I don't like denying myself. I am a selfish person at times. I remember early on in our marriage, Yvette, I think it was about two months into my marriage, she said to me, stop living like you're single. (laughs) I needed to hear that. I was being selfish. I needed to be convicted. And Yvette was 100% right. I thought about it and I was like, dang, she's right. (laughs) And there's a lot of times that I say, dang, she's right. (laughs) And Jesus uses this metaphor to challenge us. Deny yourself. Pick up the cross daily. You know, I've heard this metaphor a lot in the church, you know, about picking up your cross. But I think we also have to remember maybe how offensive offensive this would have been to the disciples. That's my... Sorry. Yeah, sure. We have to remember the cross wasn't just a metaphor to them. You know, we have a cross and it's up here and we see it and it's very can be very sanitized. But a cross in the ancient world was not something that was adorned. It was not something that was a symbol of faith. What was a cross? A cross was a symbol of oppression, of subjugation. As a way of Rome saying, guess what? We're in power and you're not. You follow us. And so when Jesus uses this cross, this way of giving up your life, this would have been a very kind of unusual metaphor to them. The disciples probably throughout their life would have seen hundreds of people crucified. They would have seen the blood, they would have seen the gore, and yet Jesus is using the cross as a metaphor to them. I want us to think too, it can be easy to think of the cross as a metaphor, but I can only imagine when Jesus is walking up to Golgotha and is carrying his cross, what the disciples are thinking. Maybe these words echoed in their mind and they're wondering, what does it mean to pick up our cross? And why should we pick up a cross? It's because it is in this we discover true life. It is in this we become more like Jesus. It is in this act we begin to discover the life of the resurrection. It is only when we are willing to die that life can begin to occur. I remember a time of darkness and suffering that I went through, and I only began to see the light as I began to submit to Jesus in my time of darkness, in my suffering, saying, Jesus, form me into your image. That's the goal of following Jesus. When someone would become a disciple of a rabbi and during the time of Jesus, the goal was the disciple wanted to be like the rabbi. He wanted to teach, he wanted to learn, he wanted to be like the rabbi. And some of you know that right before COVID, I went through a divorce. It was a time of great pain, a time of great confusion, asking the Lord, why is this going on? I don't understand. Lord, I've given my life to you. I'm trying to follow you in ministry. This doesn't make sense. And I asked questions like, will I ever pastor again? I remember coming back to Edmonton feeling utterly lost, dejected. I was depressed. I felt like a failure, like giant chains around my back weighing me down. I wanted Jesus to rescue me from my circumstance. I wanted Jesus just to Poof, bang, it's all better. 
But that's often not how Jesus works. Jesus chooses to meet us in the midst of our suffering. And he wants to use it to mold us into his image. He wants to meet us in that pain and work with us and bring healing. But that healing is, part of that is being formed into his image. And I remember coming back to Edmonton feeling like an utter failure, not wanting to go to church and not wanting to talk to everyone and, about my divorce. But I, I went to counseling. I chose to go to church. I chose to go to prayer. I went to a group called Freedom Session, which was a group to help people um, work through trauma, work through uh, pains of the past. And Jesus didn't take away my pain right away. But what he did do is he began to smooth out my rough edges. I don't know about you, but I've got some rough edges. <laughs> Often in my past, I could be very judgmental. Jesus was softening my heart with his Holy Spirit, changing the way I saw people, seeing them in their humanity. Jesus began to take my pride, which was really just a mask for my lack of self-identity, trying to prove myself, and he began to sand it down. He began to take it away and replace it with his identity. He began to teach me to rest. So much of my life I would strive. I would strive for acceptance, strive to do well, push myself in sports and, and things like that. And Jesus was saying, I want you to rest. Jesus was using my suffering to shape me into his image. It sucked. <laughs> it really did. It was hard. But it was in that, I remember a prayer came to my heart about a year into my suffering. I began to just say, Lord, make me into your image. Lord, just do what you need to do. It was no longer, Lord, rescue me, change everything. It became, Lord, form me into your image. Just use me where I am. See, God desires to meet us in the midst of our pain. Because in this place, our heart is more raw. When we are in pain and suffering, our walls begin to break down. And all of a sudden, what happens? Those walls are down and the Holy Spirit begins to come in. Because we no longer are keeping him out. This morning, if you're feeling broken, confused, tired, depressed, God wants to meet you there. It's not going to be, I would say, it's usually not an immediate kind of bang, you're well, but he wants to form you in it as much as it is painful. Will you follow him in your suffering? He desires to form us. And one thing I want to note, there's this beautiful thing that Jesus is doing in this passage is that he's taking the cross, which is a symbol of oppression, it's a symbol of death, it's a symbol of subjugation, and he's turning it into a symbol of life. Jesus takes those crappy parts of our life that no one likes to see, that we're ashamed of, and he wants to bring those to the light and make those to be light, to be life-giving. And all we have to do is open our hands and say, Jesus, meet me here, form me into your image. The third point this morning is true life is found in the way of the cross. True life is found in the way of the cross. Luke 9, 24 to 25. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? Now Jesus offers his disciples kind of a paradox here. 
if you want to keep your life, you're actually going to end up losing it. But if you're willing to lose it for my sake, you're going to keep it. And I'm thinking the disciples maybe had a hard time stomaching that. They desired the overthrow of Rome. They desired security and freedom. And these would all be very understandable in that time. If I was a Jew living in the first century, these are probably the exact same things I would want. But those desires had to come into submission to Jesus. I'm not sure what your desires are, but we are called to bring those into submission to Jesus, to subordinate them to him. If the worship team can come up, that'd be great. Our life is not about our desires. Our desires may be very good things, but are they submitted to the cross? Often I'll see my own life and wonder, why Jesus isn't more apparent. And I believe sometimes it's because I'm just not surrendered to him as much as I should. And surrender is not just this one-time thing. I grew up in a very charismatic environment, and I'm very appreciative for it, and I think altar calls and things are important, but often there became this, you know, make this decision, make this decision. But I came to realize it was more about actually what I did on the daily basis, one-time decisions are important things, but the question is, how are we living throughout the week? We often want the life that Jesus has for, it, for us, but we want it on our terms. Are we willing to lose our life for his sake and then find true life in Jesus? I don't know what this means for you. You know, it's very easy for me to stand up here and say certain things, but this is where you need to ask the Holy Spirit I don't know what your daily cross is. I'm not in your shoes. Maybe Jesus is saying, walk with your friend who has cancer. Love them. Spend time with them. Serve them. Maybe he's saying, walk with your elderly parents. Care for them. Know them. Spend time with them. Maybe he says, go to your friend who everyone thinks is a social outcast and spend time with him because that's not the way I see him. What is Jesus asking you to do? Maybe it means listening to your spouse. Sometimes, you know, your spouses say things that are hard but true. Which part of you needs to die so that you can experience life? This morning, will you follow him? I'll pray and the worship team uh, can lead us in worship. Father, I thank you that you, you bring life, Lord. You bring goodness, Lord. But you also ask us to give these parts of you that don't bring life, as you want us to be full of more of you. Lord, I pray for those, of you, those here that are walking through suffering. Lord, that feel depressed, that are going through a time of darkness, would you give them strength, Lord? Pray that you would meet them there, Lord that they would know you in that place, Lord, and how you desire to form them into your image through what they're going through. Thank you, Father. Amen.